Good morning again. Hey, as people are feeling more and more confident about coming back to in-person services, it has been so much fun to see faces that we haven't seen for more than a year. And then the other thing that we've been seeing a lot of are people who found us online right here over the last several months and are now starting to come also to in-person services. And if that's you, if you're a person who's who found us online or getting to know us, let me quickly uh, give you a real, real, real short history lesson here. Uh, Manual was founded in 2007, and the way we did it was we started with uh, launch team meetings, we called them in the summer, and then we went to once a month services, and then in the wintertime, in, in December, we went to once a week services. And the reason, the reason that we ended up starting a new church instead of just enfolding into another one is a lot of us were misfits. We, we felt like misfits. And maybe some of you are actually here today because you feel like a misfit too. If you're taking notes, I invite you to write this down. Have you ever felt like a misfit when you've tried church? We even considered a tagline when we first launched, at least for a little while. We said, do we have our tagline be Emmanuel, a church for misfits? Now, before I go any further on this, I want to be really clear about what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying here is that, oh, we wanted to be a church where we all looked like one another. What I'm not saying is we wanted to be a church where everyone agrees on all the same music. We didn't want to be a church where everybody in that church highlighted exactly the same Bible verses. That, that's not the kind of misfit, not misfit categories I'm, I'm talking about here. What I am saying is that there's so many of us who felt like, there was either too much division over things we really shouldn't be dividing over, or on the other extreme, there was too little distinction. Let me explain more about what I mean by both of those things. And let's start with that whole too much division piece. You take something like baptism. The Bible does not say how much water to use or exactly what age you should be when you're baptized. And yet, what are the two primary things that we divide over when it comes to baptism. You know, we divide over how much water we should use and what age a person should be. Well, whether it's baptism or communion or spiritual gifts or end times, one of the reasons so many of us feel like misfits is because we've been told you have to take a specific stand or a specific position on things that the Bible doesn't explicitly teach. And this goes way beyond sacraments or doctrines. Over the last 10 years, nothing has been dividing churches more than social issues. The most polarizing issue right now is race. Instead of uniting around biblical principles, instead of working together to uncover why do these disparities exist, and what works and what doesn't work is anyone else seeing people who could be potential allies becoming adversaries when they wouldn't have to. Well, we could do this all afternoon. There is so much that divides us. And there's very little difference these days between the things that are dividing our culture and the things that are dividing churches. If you see potential for common ground where people are just drawing lines in the sand, 
If you ever feel like there is way too much majoring in the minors, if you believe there is a better way to disagree than just yelling at each other, you're not alone. All right, that's what I mean by sometimes there's too much division. Well, let me now explain what I mean by too little distinction. Jesus said, follow me. And he led people down a path that very few people want to walk. At least they don't think they want to walk it. We talked about this last week. If you ever felt like the pastor could just be replaced by a life coach or a politician or a Pharisee, that is a legitimate reason to feel like you're a misfit in the church. One of the reasons now that I'm so passionate about all this, about, about either too much division or, or we're, we're, there's not enough distinction, is I have seen, I have experienced firsthand what happens when we have unity in Christ. In fact, I got an email just this week from my former youth director when I was uh, a teenager. Back when I was in high school, it was, it was amazing. Almost all of the youth groups in my town, my hometown of Hastings, almost all of the youth groups would partner up. They would collaborate. Can you believe that? On retreats and on events, things like prayer breakfasts and service projects. We came together around the common goal of helping teenagers know about Jesus. And then when we were first planting Emmanuel, one of my most vivid memories from those days back in, the, in the, the time leading up to 2007, I remember a time, several of us church planters or aspiring church planters here, we were attending a conference in Detroit. And at that time, I remember looking around and in the Detroit airport, we were the only multiracial group, white, black, Asian, Latino. There we were, the only group that was united. And what brought us together? What brought us together was our desire to try to build these communities where people were learning what does it mean to become more like Jesus and experiencing that. I have served in or partnered directly with Lutheran churches, Catholic churches, Methodist churches, Baptist churches, independent churches, charismatic churches, evangelical churches, rural churches, small town churches, urban churches, suburban churches. And guess what I've discovered? Every single one of those contacts have their strengths. They also have their blind spots. And there is so much we can learn from one another. You know, at the last wedding that I, I just officiated, I led the group in a prayer. It's called the Lord's Prayer. Maybe many of you know it. And it was something to, to start this prayer and all these people that were coming from all around Minnesota and, and the Dakotas, we were able to unite our voices despite our different backgrounds with one voice around a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. If there's something within you that resonates with the idea that we should somehow be more both more united than we are and also at the same time more distinct from the world around us, guess what? That is the vision that Jesus cast for his church. Can I get an amen? All right, well, let's take a look here. If you have your Bible with you, uh, let's open up to John chapter 17 and we're gonna look here at right now at verse 21. I wanna let you know too, if you don't have a Bible at home, there's a place you can go, uversion.com. They got a great free Bible app that you can download there. All right, here's the verse. It says this 
and this is Jesus praying. We'll talk about this more in a little bit. He prays that we all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I'm in you. May they also be in us. This, this is a place I want to invite you right now. Put a bookmark here. Because what we're going to do is we're going to get a running start at this. We're going to look at what comes before it, and then we're going to read here. This is, is so key. So we are going to come back to this, but right now I, I want to invite you to write this down. Jesus prayed that we would be one as he and his Father are one. That is so key. Originally in an early draft of this, I put I wanted the word one to be highlighted. I think it's key that we highlight this as he and his Father are one. When we founded Emmanuel, Back in 2007, one of the commitments we made was that we would not duck the hard stuff. That's why today we are launching a brand new series and we're calling this new series, Why Are Christians So Blank? That's the name of the series. And this is a conversation that we are going to have, not just here online, but we're going to have it right outdoor at the serv- that pavilion right there in the center of the Shoreview community. Because I think this is an important conversation for us to have. There's so many people who wonder, why, why do Christians seem so anti? Why do they seem so divided? Why do, they, why do they seem so politically passionate? Why are they so narrow-minded? These are the types of things we're going to be talking about during this series. Again, right out there in the open, because I think people need to hear um, this, a conversation about this. And what we're going to press into today is the question, why are Christians so divided? Why are Christians so divided? And once again, for the record, on our best days, Christians are divided because Jesus drew distinctions. Jesus said, follow me. And if we're going to authentically follow Jesus, there are going to be things that we got to leave behind. But here is an essential question. And there's a place to write this down in your notes too. Were the things that separate us a big deal for him? Isn't that an important question? Are the things that separate us a big deal for him? Well, with the time we have left, what we're going to look at now, the reason I asked you to put a bookmark here, is we're going to look at what Jesus himself modeled and taught about this. Can we all agree? There's a lot of things we disagree about. But can we all agree that what Christ said is a great starting point for a conversation about what Christians can unite around? Common sense, right? All right, well, I said we'd work our way back towards John uh, 20 or 1721. So what we're going to do right now, and if you have your Bible, I really invite you to do this. Um, go all the way back to John 12. And what we're going to do is we're just going to do a really quick scan here, a quick overview of these chapters leading up to 17. All right, so let's go back to 12. Um, and look for a heading. You probably have a heading in your Bible. Look for a heading that talks about the triumphal entry, or maybe it says the... Um, the uh, the, like Palm Sunday or something like that. So here, take a look and see if you can see that. All right, so in chapter 12, we find this section that's called the triumphal entry. And what's happening right here in this section is that after three years of ministry, Jesus rode into Jerusalem and he was greeted by a huge crowd of people and they were waving palm branches and they were shouting Hosanna. And look at what the religious leaders said. They said this in verse 19. They said, Pharisees said to one another, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, what they say, the world has gone out to him. So many people were drawn to Jesus. Why? Well, Jesus spoke like no one spoke before. And his words had weight. 
The Bible says even the wind and waves obeyed him. Credible witnesses testify to Jesus performing miracles and claiming to forgive sins. And men and women and children, the powerful and the marginalized, were drawn to this man. He so embodied what is best in our world that history's timeline ultimately is divided over his life, what comes before and what comes after his birth. And even though that's true, the next time, the very next time, just keep scanning ahead, the next time that we see Jesus addressing the crowd in Jerusalem, they're not shouting Hosanna. What are they shouting? They're shouting, crucify him. All right, so that's a little bit about chapter 12. Chapter 13, Jesus gathered with his closest followers for a feast called Passover. And all the tension is building for the reader especially if you've never heard this story before. Because the narrator reveals that there's one of these disciples, one of Jesus' inner circle called Judas, named Judas, and he's on his way to betray Jesus. And not long after that, Jesus reveals Peter will deny even knowing Jesus three times, three times that very night. So the tension's building because time is running out. And as time runs out, Jesus only has one more night with his disciples. What does he do? He begins by taking the posture of a servant and he washes his disciples' feet. And then he says, this is an example for you. Serve one another like this. And then in chapter 14, so that was 13. In 14, let me turn there so I do my scanning as well. In 14, Jesus assures his disciples, okay, this, this is happening here, but things are gonna go down. But I am preparing a place for you in his father's house, in my father's house. And when Thomas says, well, how do we find the way to your father's house? Jesus responds with this, John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through, what does it say? Me. This is an example of what we said earlier. Jesus often said divisive things. But every divisive thing he said, it's really fascinating. One of the reasons, again, I invite you to have your Bibles open here, is look around when he says these divisive things. It is always for humanity's good. All right, let's take a look at an example of that. Verse 14 in the same chapter. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, what does he say? He says, I'll do it. Now, it's really important that in my name part is crucial. Praying in Jesus' name does not mean that we ask for whatever we want, and then we just tag it within Jesus' name, and then it's gonna happen. To pray in Jesus' name is to align our prayers with Christ's character and his will. And Jesus spells that out. As we continue to read in verses like this, this is from John 14, verse 27, where Jesus says, if you love me, read this next part with me, you will keep my commandments. Again, that's a divisive thing to say, but it's associated with the promise. And I invite you to read the words around there. It's associated with this promise to say that Jesus is gonna send a helper. He's gonna send the Holy Spirit. And all right, if you drifted off, if you drifted off, come back for this. One of the marks, this is so important, one of the marks 
of the Holy Spirit's presence is how we treat one another. That's huge. One of the marks of the Holy Spirit's presence is how we treat one another. We see this now as we turn to chapter 15. So if you're following along, let's turn to chapter 15. Look at this, 1512. This is my commandment that you love one another. How? As I have loved you. As we try to figure out, okay, we may not always agree on or what, what does commandment keeping look like. And as we try to figure out what that means in our context and in areas where Jesus didn't explicitly give instructions about, what's the overriding commandment? At least what's one of them that's given here? Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus commands us to love as he loves us. And how did Jesus demonstrate his love? He laid down his life for us. What Jesus is teaching them right here is so essential. Why? Because there are only about 120 disciples at that time. As Jesus was about to be crucified, as Jesus was going to be executed, there's only about 120 disciples. And Jesus told his followers to expect this. This is also in chapter 15, verses 18 through 19. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If we set out to follow Jesus, we're going to have our haters. But two things should be true. We'll have our haters, but two things should be true. Number one, if they're going to hate us, they should hate us for the things they hated him for. They shouldn't be hating us because we're a bunch of knuckleheads doing a bunch of knucklehead things. Number two, as they hate on us, our love for one another should resemble his love for us. And that brings us then to chapter 16. So if you're following along, let's look, look at 16. And maybe even as I'm talking here, scan through some of the things that, that, that Jesus says. Jesus offers in, in 16 hope and assurance like this. Uh, 16 verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And then that brings us back to chapter 17, where we started. Chapter 17. Chapter 17 is the most extensive prayer of Jesus that you can find anywhere in the Bible. This prayer includes gems like this. Look at this, John 17, verse 6. This is from Jesus' prayer. He says, I have manifest your name to the people. Isn't that loaded? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that the target for churches? To manifest God's name to the world around us. When people see us, when people hear us, who should they see? Who should they hear? They should hear God the Father, Jesus the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In addition, as Jesus is praying, to say things that are helping us to uh, learn how to pray and to align ourselves with his mission. Jesus also in that prayer, he prays at length for his disciples, the ones that were right there in the room with them. And we've seen that they are on a collision course with the people who are opposed 
to Jesus and what he was about. So Jesus offers up this prayer. He says, I've given them your word as he's praying to the Father and the world has hated them. I do not ask that you will take them out of the world, but that you will keep them from the evil one. One of the reasons that so many minority groups resonate so deeply with the scriptures is that Christianity began as a very, very, very small minority in a world that was extremely hostile to them. And yet, what did Jesus do? He sent them into that very world. And as he sent them into that very world, look at this, John 17, 18, as you have sent me into the world, Jesus prays, so I have sent them. Do you catch the wording there? As the Father sent Jesus, so Jesus sending them. So as we go, we are to, let's put all this together, we are to manifest Jesus' example and his teaching and his commands as we go. To live, to love, to model as he did. Commands like, love one another as I have loved you. Examples like radical service to one another. Examples like loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. So that now brings us back to verse 20 and 21 and the ones that follow. Let's uh, read right here. Um, chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. Now what, uh, and we'll talk about it in a second. Let me read it. Um, Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, referring to his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Normally, when I research um, sections of the scripture like this, you should see my desk at my, at my office. I, I pull out six, seven or more commentaries and Bible dictionaries and, and bi study Bibles and all these things. And almost always, um, I, I see something there that I, I never would have thought before or, or didn't know. Something about the context or something about the word, the Greek word and what it meant. And so almost always I come away with something that, that was unique or something that would have been lost in translation. I had a very different experience this week. I pulled out all those commentaries and things, but there wasn't a whole lot about these passages. Why? Because they say what they say. It's, it is really straightforward here. They say, be one as Jesus and the Father are one. Let's continue on. We're going to go verses 22 through 26. This just picks up where we left off. The glory that you have given me, I've given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. You know, I was tempted on this passage. It, it, it says so many of the same things so many times. Our, you know, time, we only have so much time together, and, and I want to make every word count. I was tempted to just leave some of those out, but they're repeated 
over and over and over for a reason, to reinforce this principle that we may be one as Jesus and the Father may be one, that he may be in us, his presence may be dwelling in us. All right, so let's see now if we can bring all this together and we wanna make this as helpful and actionable as possible. Please take a moment to write down this principle and then let's talk about it. Here is today's invitation. Will you help us manifest? I had originally said model, but I love that word manifest. Let's go with the scripture. Will you help us manifest unity in Christ? Unity in Christ. Jesus is clearly praying that we may be one. And he's also made it clear in the chapters leading up to this one that that unity has boundaries around it. The things that matter most to us should be the things that matter most to him. So let's pursue both of those, unity and unity in Christ. Okay, now what do we do when we disagree? Because we're going to disagree. When, when we're not sure, okay, what is it that matters to him and doesn't matter to him and, and, and all those types of things. I want to invite you to write this down too. What do we do when we disagree? When we disagree, not if, when we disagree. Can we agree to disagree in a God-honoring way? This is a huge part of what it means to manifest unity in Christ. We are going to disagree. You're not God, I'm not God, we're not even close. So when we disagree about what God is trying to say to us, can we disagree in a God-honoring way? What does that look like? It looks like the Bereans in Acts 17, verse 11. When they heard some new teachings, they went to the scriptures together to examine them and they were commended for it. What does it look like? It looks like what Paul instructs in Titus 3.10. He says we shouldn't dis make that jump from disagreeing to active in acting in divisive ways. Paul said it this way. He says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with them. There's a difference between disagreeing and active acting divisively in a world that seems to have lost its ability to disagree well, imagine how we'll shine if we listen well and gather facts before forming conclusions and hold one another accountable to divisive behaviors like triangulation and spreading false or misleading information or name calling or attacking those that we disagree with. And let's do our best by God's grace to follow the example and teaching of Jesus. Well, I mentioned that we launched Emmanuel in 2007. That was the year that Steve Jobs introduced the world to the iPhone. And then years later, Jobs had this idea. What I want to do now, he said, I want to create a store that is different, just as the iPhone was different than any phone before it. He wanted to create a store that he could sell Apple products in. And as he was describing what he wanted to somebody, he said, I wanna create something that is on brand and special. Anyone else love that phrase? On brand and special. And how many of you went to Apple stores shortly after they opened? They were different, weren't they? So different. And people were drawn to them. So with a show of hands, let's apply this. There's the principle here. How many would say it's really easy to get off-brand when it comes to Jesus? And we see it all around us and we see it in ourselves. It is so easy to get off-brand. 
And how many would also say then, this is one of the things that's keeping people away from church. Unity in Christ. It is one of the ways that we can look more like the church that Jesus cast a vision for. Therefore, the word says, Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who... For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I want to challenge each of us. Let's work on committing this to memory. And if you have a really, really, really hard time committing it to memory, at least read it so many times that it's, it's in here, even if you don't have every word. This is hard for so many of us. I, I, I cannot memorize things the way I used to. But what I'm committing to do, I, I wrote these words out on a card. I put this card where I see it every day. I'm trying to read it multiple times during the day. Let's do that for these next four weeks. Let's take this passage and do our absolute best to memorize it. And hey, if there's any kids that are watching, let me give you a kid's version right here. Romans or Hebrews 12, one through two. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Can you say that with me, kids? Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Try to memorize that. See if you can even make that memorized. So important. Well, when it comes to fixing our eyes on Jesus, anyone want to hear some good news? God wants to help. Do you remember what he said in here? Embedded in all of this about commandment keeping and get ready, the world's going to hate you. Embedded in all this was this promise that Jesus was going to send the Holy Spirit. In the book of Luke, Jesus, in his own words, he says, this Holy Spirit is a gift that we can ask for. There's no way in a world like ours that we're just going to on our own get to where we can be if we pray for that gift, the Spirit of Christ. So before we close with this great song where we're singing about how uniting our voices in Christ alone our hope is found, let's pray for that gift of the Holy Spirit to fall on all of us, even as it fell on the church in the book of Acts. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful this Father's Day that none of us are fatherless. And Father, we thank you so much that it is your desire to give us good gifts. There's no better gift that I can think of than the gift of your Holy Spirit who comes within us, transforms our hearts and our minds, convicting us of when it truly is something that isn't right or confirming something that is. It's the Spirit of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we're so thankful that you are the one that provided the invitation through the lips of your son to people who were there to hear it. And Lord, we thank you for the prayer that you've included here in your word that Jesus said he didn't just pray for his disciples then. He's praying for us now, all those who would hear the word, the good news was passed along. So Father, it's those promises we cling to and we ask right now that your spirit would be poured upon us as individuals and upon us as a church. May we manifest what it looks like to have unity in Christ. This we pray in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.